I was five years old and my grandmother thought it would be a good idea to take me to a live performance, a, a theater performance. And, and this was a, a production of Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. And if you remember, that's the story of Ebenezer Scrooge and how he's visited by the, the spirit of, of Christmas uh, past, present, and future, right? And, and he makes some huge changes in his life, but, but he's a bad guy, right? And, and, and if you remember, he has an employee named Bob Cratchit, and, and Bob's son's name is Tiny Tim. And I don't remember if this was a professional performance or just a community theater, um, but I know that at five years old, I was enthralled by this production. I, I, I was amazed by it. And, and I know that only because I, I got infuriated with Scrooge. I was mad at Scrooge. I couldn't believe the way that he treated his employees, and I couldn't believe the effects that that had on poor little tiny Tim. And so there I was at five years old, I was mad. And so I stood up in the audience. I walked down to the stage and I pointed my finger at Mr. Scrooge and I yelled at the top of my lungs, you are a bad man. Sure enough, even back then, I seemed to feel comfortable with speaking my mind. I was, I was okay at speaking truth to power because if, if I didn't stand up and speak, who would? I mean, who would stand up for a little tiny Tim? Who would tell this evil man that he is not good? Apparently, I thought I would. I would be the one who would stand up and speak truth to power. Um, I, I was fed up. I just, I just couldn't put up with this injustice anymore. And so I needed to say something. You know, if I could describe Jesus's attitude in these last next few parables that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, I would describe him as being fed up. He was done with, with seeing injustice. He was done with seeing the religious power structures of his day abusing the people. And so he was ready to stand up and speak. And, and so what we're going to see is Jesus taking his first few jabs at the religious powers of his day. In fact, we're, we're going to be looking in the last week of his life, in the last, last week of his ministry, when he finally stands up and speaks truth to power. Our passage today is in Matthew 21. I'd love it if you join us there. Uh, we're going we're gonna to study this parable in just a minute, but in order to set the context, uh, let's, let's see where Jesus is. See, it, the beginning of 21, it begins with the iconic scene of the triumphal entry. This is where on Sunday, Jesus comes in to the temple area. He, he's ushered into Jerusalem, into the city, and people gather around him. And they're, they're praising his name, Hosanna, to the glory to the king. They're declaring Jesus as king. Then verse 12, the, the next day, Jesus comes into the temple. And here's where he cleanses the temple. 
It says that, that he, he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables. He made the religious leaders really mad. Not only did he make them mad because the people declared him king, but then he goes into their temple. He overturns tables. Where did a guy like this get that kind of authority? The next morning, which would, would have been a Tuesday, Jesus wakes up and on his way in back to that very temple, he, he walks by a fig tree and he curses the fig tree. Okay, these are all symbolic and, and some of them not so symbolic, but overt actions that, that have a ton of meaning. That what they're saying is that Jesus is saying, I'm someone with authority. And uh, he's also saying he doesn't like the authority that was being used with the people around him. And so what we have, what we have is a situation where the, the religious leaders are, are starting to question him. In fact, they don't, they don't want to uh, make him mad because the people like him. And so what they do is they question his authority. And that takes place in verse 23. Uh, it says that Jesus enters the, the temple courts. And, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. They said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Well, Jesus uh, replied, I, I will also ask you a question. I love the way Jesus does that. He, he, he asks them, a, he answers the question with a question. Um, I'll ask you a question. And if you answer me, he says, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He says, John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it amongst themselves and, and said, if we say from heaven, uh, Jesus, he, he'll, he'll ask us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the people. And they all hold that John was a prophet. Now, John the Baptist was a bigger deal than I think we give him credit for in those days. Um, John was really well known. Uh, he was known all over the, the kind of known world at, at that time. He had followers all over the place. And he was loved even here, well after he had died. He was loved by the people. He was respected by the people. And so the fact that Jesus brings up John is incredibly important here because he's going to talk about him again. But the question that they ask Jesus is, by what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? By what authority are you coming in as king? By what authority are you turning over tables and disrupting our temple? The word that they use there for authority is exousia. Saying, what, what kind of exousia do you have? Uh, this, is, this is a word that means, that means the power of choice, the power to decide. It, it means liberty or freedom to do as one pleases. It is the authority to make your own decisions, not, not someone else making the decision for you. In fact, uh, one of the things that people loved about Jesus, Mark verse 1:22 says it this way, that the people were amazed at Jesus' teachings. They were amazed at his teachings because he taught them as one who had exousia. He had authority, not as the teachers of the law. You see, the teachers of the law taught as if the, you know, the authority came from somewhere else, but Jesus taught as if the authority came from himself, and this was different. 
So that's why Jesus doesn't quite just answer them uh, with the, the clear picture saying, hey, I am my own authority. They, they wouldn't have liked that answer even though that was the truth. Instead, he talks about John the Baptist. He brings that up and, and then without a pause, flowing straight out of the question and answer, straight out of Jesus saying, I'm not going to tell you by what authority, what exousia I am doing these things. Then he leads right into this parable. There's not a break in, in the, the original text here. Uh, remember, uh, those titles are added later. And so this, this story comes right out of it. And in verse 28, Jesus says, he asks a question, what do you think? A great question, but he goes on with the story. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. Once again, Jesus places uh, his story, one of these essential stories in a vineyard. Here in, in, in a vineyard had tons of meaning, okay? This was very symbolic. It was a symbolic image of the Jewish people. The Jewish people like to think of themselves as God's vineyard. And, and what we're going to see is that there's that meaning here, but Jesus broadens it a bit. And what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the vineyard is, is God's, the place where God's work is done. It's, it's like the place where God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. This is God's kingdom. It's like the father is asking his son to go and build my kingdom, go work in my vineyard. And so that's what the father asks of his son. It's a, it's a simple request. And the son looks back at his father and boldly says in verse 29, I will not. Now, just to be clear, uh, in that context, just as like our context and in really any context, um, a son, for a son to say no directly to his dad, that was a sign of rebellion. Okay? That was not looked on as a good thing. It, it never has been looked at as a good thing. Um, but there's a, a great little but here. He says, but later the son, the rebellious son, changed his mind and went. He changed his mind and he goes into the vineyard and he goes to work. You see, uh, the word that is used for changed his mind is, is the word uh, metamelomai. Metamelomai is, is one of the words that's translated as repent. In fact, later on in this passage, that same exact word will be translated as repent. But the biblical concept of repentance involves a changing of our mind. It involves it involves a, a change in the way we look at the world. It's very closely tied to that. And it's a, it's a change, of course, that begins in our mind and then works itself out in our real life and in our actions. Verse 30, then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. So he says, son, go and work in my vineyard. Go build my kingdom, right? This son, the second son answers, I will, sir. This son answers very properly. He, he, he answers formally. He answers the way that every dad throughout all time has wanted their kids to answer. He says, yes, sir. 
But passage goes on to say he did not go. So here we have one son who, who says the wrong thing, says the rebellious thing, but then later goes and does what the dad wants. And then the other son who says the very right thing, the, the thing that everyone wants to hear, but then doesn't follow through with it. So Jesus ends this parable by asking the religious leaders a question that we need to ask. And question is, which one of these two did what the father wanted? Now, before we get to the answer, uh, the, the answer that these, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the experts here um, give, I, I want to I ask you a question. And, and the question is, which one of these two sons do you relate to most? Which one are you more like? Clearly, Jesus was using these two people these two different sons as examples. And they were examples, and they were extreme examples, definitely, but they were examples for the people of those days, right? The, the chief priests and the, and the elders and the teachers, he wanted to prove a point with them. But I have this, this crazy idea. I actually think that those words that Jesus was saying to those people back then actually really apply to us today. See, I, I have this kind of old-fashioned concept that that this book, that those words that were spoken 2,000 years ago actually have meaning and application for us today. And I believe that actually Jesus wants to ask us the same very questions. He wants us to think about which one of those two sons am I? Which one are you? So are you the first one or the second one? If you think about it, uh, both these kids are, are rebellious. They're rebellious children. It's just that the first one is rebellious to his father's face. But the second one is rebellious behind his father's back. He's rebellious behind the scenes. He, he, he doesn't want to ruffle any feathers. You see, he's rebellious when no one's looking. But either way we slice it, one thing is true. And this is true of all of us. And I want you to write this down. We are all rebellious children. Some people are openly rebellion, or rebellious, vocally rebellious, and then some people are uh, non-confrontational and rebellious where no one's looking. And so what kind of rebel are you? Now you might be thinking to yourself, Josh, why are the options only rebellious? I mean, uh, I'm not a rebel. You might be thinking to yourself, like you might, you might think, I, in fact, I, I do my best to make sure that I'm not rebellious. I work hard at not being rebellious. In fact, I follow all the rules and I make sure I follow all the rules and I work really hard to follow all the rules. So Josh, I don't know that I like this, what you're insinuating about me. I am not rebellious. And if that's you, and if you have a little bit of that in you, and you're thinking about that very concept, then I, I want to say that Jesus has you exactly where he wants you. That he's actually set his bait, and he's about to reel you in.
I was retelling this story to someone earlier this week, and as I got to this point in the story, she says, oh, wow, that is the difference between me and my brother. And she was talking about back when they were kids, uh, when her mom would tell her to do something, she says, I would, I would always argue. I would argue and argue and say, why? But then she said, I was always the one who went and did it anyway. And then she said her brother, though, on the other hand, was the one who always said the right thing, but then would never follow through with it. So I, I just said to her, I said, you know, I'm, I don't want to sound offensive here or anything, but according to this story, that means that Jesus would say you are more like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and your brother is like the religious leaders. And, and the look on her face was priceless because it was a look of uncomfort of discomfort. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do in these essential stories. And he's trying to put us in a place of uncomfortable disorientation. And that's where the disorientation would eventually lead us to spiritual awakening. And see, that's what happens next with these religious leaders. If you remember back in verse 31, Jesus' question was, which of the two did what his father wanted? Without hesitation, the religious people know the answer. They said, the first one. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. So what he does is he reverses the script here. What he does is he says that actually the one that you think is the hero is not you. It is the rebels. It is the bad guys. What Jesus is saying is actually, oh, yep, you're right. Uh, The ones who are outly rebellious are entering the kingdom of God before you. You religious leaders, you are the ones waiting to get in. They are going first. What Jesus is telling them is you may give lip service to God. You may say all the right things. You may look good, but you are not working in God's vineyard. Whatever you're doing, it's not building God's kingdom. Now, if I were honest, at this point in the story, I kind of start feeling a little bit bad for these religious leaders. Um, I feel like the the chief priests and the teachers and the elders, these are people who have given their life to this. Uh, They are are not lazy people. They have worked hard. Uh, These are the people who are putting in 50, 60, 70 hours a week for God's kingdom. So they think. They think that they're building something. They think that this is what they're supposed to be doing. They know their Bible. They can teach the Bible. They've memorized it. They, they do their best to keep all of the commandments. And on the outside, they were without fault. These were the leaders of the most well-organized religion that the world had ever known. And if that were me, and I heard Jesus saying to me that all of my work was more or less useless and that I wasn't working for God, that I wasn't working in his vineyard, I'd be, I'd be a little distraught. I'd be a little disoriented. In fact, I'd be devastated. But in, and let me be very clear here. This is the devastating truth that 
all religious people need to hear time and time again. And let me be honest, this religious person needs to hear this time and time again. And it's this, that even devout religion can become a form of dangerous rebellion. That even in my religious effort and zeal, that can become a form of rebellion, especially when religion becomes all about what I do. When it becomes about my work and becomes about what I give and and how much I give and and how good I am and how many rules I follow. Do you see a theme here? When religion becomes about me and I and what I do, that's when it gets dangerous. You see, religion is uh, uh, is never about what I do. Following Jesus is not about that at all. Following Jesus is not about what I do for Jesus. It is always about Jesus, what what Jesus has done and what he is currently doing for me. That is what it is all about. So one of the interpretations of this passage that must be avoided at all costs is the one that says, be like the first son and get to work. As if Jesus is telling this in order to to lift up the one son who works and then put down the the religious leaders who don't work. That's not what Jesus is saying. There's a lot of things that we can say about religious people. Religious people are are, are definitely a lot of things, but lazy is not one of them. Religious people are the ones who work hard. And like I said, these were people who gave their life to this. They earned and strived and tried. They worked hard. And that's what religion is all about. And the point is that even religion, even our work for God can become rebellious, especially when we see it as if what I do will earn something for, from God, as if what I do can coerce God to doing what I want, as if if I just give this amount, then God will bless me, as if, if I just do these things, if I follow these commandments, then that's when it'll all work out, and that is not the way it works. That's not what Jesus is saying here. You see how even though devout religion can become dangerous, it can become dangerous rebellion. It, It does that when it becomes about me and what I do. But the constant temptation that we all face, it's the temptation that we've always faced. In fact, uh, it's, it's the one that's way deep down within us. Here's what I want you to, to write down as we think about this is that, that, that our strongest and actually our oldest temptation is to choose independence over dependence. We want to choose independence over dependence. You see, the, the serpent's first temptation of Adam and Eve was to convince them that they could be like God, that they didn't need God because he was trying to tell them that they had authority in and of themselves. What the serpent was trying to say is that you can build your own vineyard. Saying you can build your own kingdom, that's what's important. And here we are, 
on Independence Day weekend, where as a country, we are celebrating independence. Okay, we're, we're celebrating the fact that there, there is, there's, no, uh, there's no authority over us. There's no exosia uh, that is above us as Americans. And let me tell you, that's a great thing to celebrate. In fact, I'm going to put on my, my uh, American flag swimsuit and I'm going to grill an American hot dog as I celebrate Independence Day this weekend. Independence is a great thing to celebrate for our country. But can I just say, it's a, it's a terrible thing to celebrate in the Christian life. In fact, the stance of the Christian life is not one of independence. It's one of dependence. You see, our strongest and oldest temptation is to be independent, is to be without God, to not rely on Him. And the stance of the Christian life is dependence. And that is what we need. That's what we need now more than ever. You see, the, uh, we were born into independence. Uh, we were born doing what we want. And what we need to recognize is that we, we can't live that way. We need to, to submit ourselves under a higher, a higher authority, the authority of Jesus. And that's what this parable is all about. That's what he's trying to tell these religious leaders, that his authority, his exousia, is the very thing that they need. All they need to do is change. Our goal is to become more and more dependent on Jesus' death. And resurrection. The, the philosopher, theologian, St. Augustine, he once said, as if to God, he, it was as if a prayer to God, he said, I will distrust myself. I will distrust me. I will trust in you, God. And I think that is a beautiful sentiment. That's exactly what uh, this passage is going to, for. It's, it's saying, God, it's, it's not about me anymore. It's not about my authority. There is a, a better way. And it's following Jesus' authority. And that's exactly where Jesus leads us here. In verse 32, as he's wrapping things up, he brings it back to John. If you remember, we started with John the Baptist, and now he's bringing John back up again. Verse 32, he says, For John came to show you the way of righteousness. Okay, that word righteousness, just, it just means that right living, right action, right attitude, right relationship. It is being right with the world. And what Jesus is saying is, John showed you the way of righteousness. And yet, he's saying to the religious leaders, you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. Once again, he's using them as the heroes. They believed, he's saying. And even after you saw this, even after you saw them believe and them change and them repent and them come to, to this, this newfound faith that, that even then, he says, you did not repent and believe. He's condemning these religious leaders because they missed out on this opportunity. You see, we're born into independence. Our natural bent is to trust ourselves. But the way of righteousness is the way of repentance. 
The way of righteousness is to repent of our own trust in ourselves, of our own listening to our own authority, and it's to change our mind and focus on a better authority. That's what Jesus is wanting from these religious leaders. That's what he's wanted from everybody all along. It's to distrust myself and trust in Jesus. And that's why Jesus came back to the topic of John. Do you remember what John's big thing was? Do you remember what John is most known for? I bet you do. It's in his last name. <laughs> remember, he's John the what? Yeah, John, John the Baptist, right? Okay, it's not really his last name, but that's what he was known for. He was known for baptizing people. And baptism, especially the baptism of John, was all about repentance. In fact, in Matthew 3, 11, uh, John actually clarifies what the baptism he performs were all about. He, he said, I baptize you with water for repentance. You see, John's baptism were for, for people who were saying, I am not good. <laughs> I am not living right. I'm not living in the right way, the way of righteousness, and I need to change. I need to change my mind, and then it will change my actions. And see, the symbol of water in baptism was about washing away the filth so that they could be clean again. In the same verse, John goes on to say, But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, even John recognizes that, that his own baptism, that it didn't save people. In fact, he's clear that there is a, a more powerful baptism than water. There's something better. It's a spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is only offered through Jesus. John's very clear about that. And it is only that baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit, that has the power to save. And so the question becomes, why does Jesus even involve John in this at all? If John's baptism doesn't save. And then why does, people, why does Jesus say that you need to repent and believe in him? Jesus is saying you need to believe in John. What's going on here? Why does Jesus say that? At the end of verse 32, Jesus condemns the priests and the religious leaders for not repenting and not believing in John. Maybe this whole time, this whole parable, Jesus is not talking about salvation. At least not the way that we think of it. That when uh, Jesus says to the, to the religious leaders that, they, that the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes have entered the kingdom of God before you, maybe he's not saying that they entered heaven before you or that they will enter heaven before you or somehow that, that they, they will not enter heaven. Okay? That's, that's not what he's talking about. Maybe what Jesus is talking about in this idea of the, the kingdom of God is something that we can enter in now. That maybe Jesus is saying that we can enter into not just heaven, but enter into life. Okay, one day we'll get to enter into heaven, definitely. But maybe he's asking us and inviting us to enter into the life that he has always wanted us to live. That he is inviting us 
under His authority, that when we leave behind our independence, when we change our mind and focus on dependence uh, to His exousia, to His authority, that we can actually start living the life that He wants us to live. It's a life that we take on His heart, that we live in His way, that we live with His purposes. That's the life He wants us to live. However, living in in His ways, with His heart, is difficult, especially uh, for, for children like me that are rebellious, uh, for, for people like me that is tempted uh, towards independence all the time. And that's why the key feature of the kingdom of God is repentance. That, that repentance is the very thing that defines who we are. It's a changing of our mind that leads to changing of our behavior. You see, the the way of righteousness is the way of repentance. That's the righteousness that John showed us. It's righteousness of change, of, of repenting, of coming before God and saying, I can't, but you can. You see, the the intersection in sense, the, the, the place where independence becomes dependence is repentance. You see that, that, that place where we can finally let go of our own exosia, our own authority and rely on his, that place is repentance. And so you and I, we need to become people who repent. We need to be people who change. And this is not something that you do just once long ago. This is something that we continue to do all the time because I am continually tempted towards independence. And I need to repent of that and become reliant and become dependent on God. And so let me ask you, is it time? Is it time now, today, on this independence weekend, to finally recognize your dependence on our Savior. Maybe it's time to stop working so hard. Maybe it's time to stop earning and to stop trying, stop trying to build your own kingdom and start focusing on God's vineyard because that vineyard is a vineyard that is found through repentance. And that's only found because because of what Jesus has done for us. You see, his grace is sufficient for you and it's all because of what he, what he did on the cross for you and for me.